straight out of Shumway. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, King Size Muscle, King Size Muscle 2, with the local 666-269 podcast. Thanks to White Bat Audio for their royalty-free introduction here for a little bit of bumper. Kind of like it, leave, leave them in the background almost. I want to do. Love that two-hour synth wave, always. All right. Let's see if we can get uh, things back on track here today. Uh, happy Estor or Astor or Easter. Take your pick. I see a lot of church-going folk are uh, here in the Shumway neighborhood. Um, we live next to uh, two sort of uh, large um, churches here. I mean, the Couve that are pretty popular. Uh, and it's funny because they're uh, kitty corner from each other. And of course, one is the uh, Church of uh, Christian Science. And the other one, I'm not exactly sure what it is, um, but it's definitely um, trying to be a mega church of some kind. So anyway, uh, blessed be. Good luck to them. As above, as is below. And uh it's a nice day here, obviously, so it's kind of nice to see people moving around for a change instead of hiding out from the rain uh, or whatever might be going on. We had snow there the other day at the beginning of spring, so hopefully you had a good celebration last night uh, for those people that uh, uh, are lunatics in the sense that they uh, still are guided and worshipped by uh, the moon, um, so Lunatics, of course, comes from uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, novel. I think that's in Ubik. Um, and so um, come to find out that uh, they're actually on the moon and not on the planet Earth. I guess that's the thing I like about Philip K. Dick is uh, you never really knew what reality you were in. And so that makes a lot of sense to me because even now I'm not sure what reality I'm in. Uh, so let's create one for ourselves here in the next uh, oh, a few moments. See how it goes. See if we can sort of make some kind of construct between us here as I try to communicate some sort of, of, of significance from my center of the universe uh, into audio, into your ear holes, and hopefully uh, giving you some sort of a navigation or construct for your journey. So I've got to reach down deep inside here and, and try to pull out something that is necessary, I suppose and try to align myself with uh, being in tune to letting the flow come in and use my experience here and uh, the, the multiverse and try to give something back to maybe somebody else who's trying to navigate this situation, uh, which many of us are for obvious reasons. Because we don't want to hang it up. <laughs> I want to hang in there until the last dog is hung, so to speak. Um, I've noticed that sort of similar sentiment among a lot of people that I would consider, you know, part of this tribe is uh, our interaction with the uh, people that we grew up with on our own social media. You know, you look and say, "Wow, look at that that old fucker there." <laughs> Jesus, man, they're looking old. And then you realize that you're the same age. <laughs> but again, it's not about the time, right? It's about the mileage. And uh, many of us, even though we are similar in age, uh, some of us have had a chance to to put on uh, a few extra miles. And hopefully, it was on the on the path less chosen that seems to make the difference. Probably that and not having children. And I would say that in some ways that is a positive and negative, obviously, because uh, for most of us, we do have to um, think about the, the urge to uh, reproduce. It's uh, wired in there naturally, of course. And so sometimes we um, look at certain situations for people or when they come and want to talk about some of the problems they have and we think about maybe what their family situation is and do they have children and so forth. Now, because I'm not a parent and I don't have 
a direct experience about raising children, um, I try to sort of stay out of that realm. And if any advice that I give or any suggestions, obviously it's uh, has to come with that caveat that, you know, I'm not able to walk in your shoes. I can empathize with you, but ultimately I cannot fully understand because I haven't made that sort of sacrifice of um, trying to <laughs> um, reproduce my, my DNA with a suitable mate at that time and uh, trying to procreate. I think for myself, because of what happened in childhood early on, like many of you other survivors uh, who have gone through uh, neglect and abuse and trauma and all the other little beautiful things that come along with it, you probably made the conscious decision, as I did, that not to have children, that the uh, crazy stops here. And I think that's probably um, something that, that resonated with me early on. At least that was something that I could control. And so for myself, um, practicing uh, safely when um, getting together with somebody when I was younger was always sort of a priority or even, dare I say, abstinence, which is pretty easy to do when <laughs> you're 19 years old and, you know, you're, you're kind of coming into your own a little bit, you know, that, that sort of uh, adolescence baby fat, you get a little bit of a growth spurt and all of a sudden now you're kind of cute and handsome um, and you're popular on the radio and so forth. I'm talking about myself. I still didn't have the ability to tune in to uh, how much bounty or abundance was before me at that time. And a lot of that has to do with um, how we feel about ourselves. We are so surrounded by so many opportunities at any given moment. That's the beauty of, of uh, the possibility of a multiverse is that any sort of timeline can be um, jumped into or produced or is waiting there for us to slide into maybe. Depends on how you feel about it. And, and believe me, my, <laughs> my, my thoughts on this change uh, quite regularly depending on what sort of uh, information I'm looking at and so on. I would suggest that probably this conversation would become very popular um, among people that, that are paying attention, especially with the release of the uh, Michelle Yeoh uh, multiverse movie, which I have not seen, so please, uh, no spoilers. I, I get the concept, um, uh, I think, so hopefully I'll be pleasantly surprised. But I'm going to have to be in the right mood to, to watch it. And I've always said that every second is a second chance if you're in the moment. And if you're in the moment and you are sort of living in a way that allows your higher self to sort of guide you through things, you will be in tune with some sort of source of this construction or a construct of this particular um, reality or timeline or whatever else. For some people, they have no choice. They only have the single. They are, are not able to conceptualize some sort of uh, movement or shift in time or being, uh, except in the in the sort of the linear way. If Socrates was right in saying that man is the measurer of all things, like a lot of theories about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the uh, the, the the forbidden fruit, the the knowledge itself, was basically um, taking our entities and 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 putting us into the linear time frame. I've heard that theory, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, again, a lot of these things that I throw out to you are, are things that I've run across, and I may consider them. I may consider them in the moment when I'm thinking about the concept and so forth, but later on I may um, drift away from it when there's new information presented or um, maybe I, I look at the analysis in a different way. So don't <laughs> don't get too confused if you get uh, sort of multiple inputs here. One of the challenges, I think, as Westerners is when it comes to dialectics, which definitely came out of a couple of conversations that I had this week with people where um, within the process of the conversation, we might uh, take a position in the beginning on, on an issue and then literally talk ourselves out or reveal 
<laughs> our true nature, that in fact it isn't sort of a, a singular um, point of action for that particular issue, that there actually can be um, two diametrically opposed ideas happening simultaneously. We have to allow for that. Um, and definitely the first time I heard about this was, of course, from my Japanese connection um, in high school and post-high school. Uh, essentially, we had an exchange uh, student that became part of our family from Japan and, and of course, of, uh, all his connections as well. And so we spent several years um, kind of one foot in, in America and one foot in expat Japanese culture. And that was a good training for myself, of course, for my own experience later of, of, of becoming an expat and moving uh, into Asia for about 15 years. And so the concept was dialectic logic was being able to hold two sort of uh, different ideas simultaneously in their mind and being okay with that. I, I think as Westerners, because we tend to be uh, so much rooted in uh, this linear progression in order to define uh, our sense of time, our sense of, of uh, morality, value, culture, whatever it may be, that when we begin to question that or it sort of erodes on its own through the process of entropy or culture um, shifts, paradigm shifts, and so on, um, it's hard to sort of accept that balance. And maybe it's not even a balance, I should say, as more of being able to be uh, an observer and not necessarily onboarding or internalizing either of these concepts and realizing that if we are in a actual non-linear experience, something like a multiverse or, you know, string theory, whatever else that might be available to us of having different sort of echoes of experience or echoes of time um, as we sort of technically march forward. Um, obviously, the discussion is that, that, that time can, you know, go both ways. I would also suggest that it's not so much a straight line of a past, present, and future um, in the sense that if we think about it linearly going one way forward and one way backwards, then we're still sort of stuck to, the, to that construct of the way that we conceive it. Think about, again, St. Augustine, who had said that the mind of God doesn't perceive time as past, present, and future. It perceives uh, the concept as a, a simultaneous event. And obviously, uh, at this stage of development within our little human brains, because we think we're so evolved and so smart, but we're just really uh, cousins to chimps with cell phones. And so I often say that we're monkeys with cell phones. Um, smartphones, dumb people. We have to get away from the, the linear concept here of, of moving forward and moving backwards and thinking about it is sort of uh, in the Matthew Conaghy uh, quote in True Detective that time itself is a flat circle, uh, like a record, sure, as a vinyl record on a turntable. And so we think that we can move forward and backwards by where we sort of drop the needle in. The first time that I was entertained by this idea was in high school. I had a teacher. His name was Mr. Wiseman, oddly enough, and probably one of the, the biggest uh, influences uh, probably on my way of thinking at that time. And so I always chuckle at the fact that as the student, my teacher was the wise man or Mr. Wiseman. And he was pretty legendary among those people that had his class because he was definitely one of a kind. And so uh, the concept there from Mr. Wiseman in his class was uh, a lot of reading. And so he had a lot of uh, books that uh, were in the corner and several issues. And so that was part of your thing was you had to read books and do book reports and so on. You know, very, pretty typical. Uh, a lot of Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five. And of course, Kurt Vonnegut is uh, basing his experience of being a, a POW in the World War II uh, in Slaughterhouse-Five, where he's writing a book of a character called Billy Pilgrim. And so uh, he 
opening line is basically he's he's become unstuck in time. And so the book is somewhat nonlinear in the fact that we're looking at a biography um, of someone's experiences. And obviously it's it's a it's an enhanced autobiography of, of Vonnegut's own experiences in Dresden as a POW, along with other things, his life like marriage and so forth. Like many authors who are writing, sometimes they are they're writing about their lives in a way to process or to give themselves some understanding by telling the story. And, and if they're good at it, the story is, is useful for other people. And remember, storytelling is medicine, just like for most natives or pagans that have oral tradition. Uh, storytelling is a form of magic with a K. Um, you have to understand that it's probably one of our first types of magic uh, as a species in the sense that once we developed communication uh, as uh, homo sapiens, that gave us a lot of advantage um, over the other species at that time. It looks like we are competing with four different type of hominids um, back in the day between um, homo sapiens, Neanderthals, um, and I've got a couple of other uh, sort of in-between and uh, another one that, that we've gotten a record with lately. Now, what those names are have slipped my mind, of course. Uh, so if time was a flat circle, I should be able to take the needle on the record and go to a different track and remembered what <laughs> those other two uh, humanoids at, on Earth at that time were. So uh, perceiving the fact that we've got, uh, you know, hunter and uh, collector uh, humanoids on the planet many, many, many years ago. Um, we developed communication. So where we sort of maybe lack in size compared to maybe Neanderthals or the other species, or maybe um, the fact that uh, Homo sapiens were, were a bit weaker. You know, we had less body hair. Um, our stature was probably smaller uh, the bands of, of, of human humans as we know them now that have managed to, to win the evolutionary lottery in that area between the four humanoid species on the planet at one time. What made us unique, I think, is the process of communication because it is a form of magic because we can communicate with other people and it allows us to either, one, organize our own sort of concepts within our mind by applying some sort of nomenclature or jargon or organizational skills. It allows us to take things before us to classify them and organize them and begin to manipulate them uh, in the reality. If we can share that with somebody else in the form of communication, then oftentimes that would make us much more efficient uh, in gathering resources, especially in hunter and gatherer concept of human beings. Now, I always lean on this, even for my other students, in the sense that we have to understand that there are things that are within us that we don't entirely control initially because we're unaware of them. Even for yourself right now, there's, there's multiple processes running in that very sort of brilliant uh, human bio uh, computer uh, thing that we're running around with in the sense that uh, we know that the brain is uh, has several different layers with several different functions. Uh, obviously, the hypothalamus or reptile brain, the little brain, the first part of the that was developed for us as humans before we sort of expanded and added on uh, other parts like in the frontal lobe and so on and developing communication. But that early brain is... Uh, you know, it just operates autonomously. Your heart's beating. You're not telling your heart to beat. You are breathing. Yes, you can, you can sort of hack your breathing. And I do encourage people to do breathing hacks, whether it's uh, Wim Hof breathing, if it's possible, uh, any kind of prana breathing, um, just exercise. Definitely breath is important um, for good health and, and good thoughts, I guess. And when I say good, again, I, that's perspective. I mean, optimum, I should say. And so optimum uh, breathing is useful. 
because it is something that we can sort of control or hack between the uh, the latter mind, the top mind that's developed where we have consciousness and, and will and so forth versus the sort of lower brain, reptile brain, which uh, reacts. It's where the, the survival instinct kicks in. And so oftentimes we may uh, operate in an automatic way based on what happens uh, between those two parts of, of the mind. Um, you know, how much control can we exhibit over our own situation versus what is already sort of hardwired in there through genetics, DNA, and biology. So a lot of things that, um, that happen for my students who are going through anxiety or nervousness or performance uh, issues when they have to do their um, monologues or dialogues with foreigners, uh, a lot of it is based on the biology of what happens when people feel like they're under attack, that flight or fight syndrome. In the process of doing thousands of interviews uh, for Cambridge and sitting in front of candidates uh, on the other side of a desk or a table and noticing that, that a large percent of them would break out in sort of red hives around the, the throat and uh, upper chest area. And it was, it was interesting because it was a repeated pattern among a lot of people. And, and it's one of those things that I became curious about and tried to try to understand. And so, again, it's always for myself about pattern recognition, looking at patterns. And because I'm neurodivergent, um, I have that as sort of a superpower. Being neurodivergent allows me sort of to be like a, a long-range patrol, uh, precognitive in some areas. It, it, that's what it looks like to the rest of the tribe, so to speak, if, if you are neurodivergent and the people around you are not. And definitely you feel like you don't fit in in this concept because of it. But if you embrace it as a superpower and realize that you have high ability for pattern recognition, you can use that um, to not only help yourself, but to help others. And so don't, don't shy away from it. Um, you know, for some people, it's pretty extreme where they get in a loop uh, with certain patterns and so forth. And so you've got to make sure that you have a way of um, regulating sort of that hyper fixation uh, that you might have. Sometimes it's actually a good thing if you are doing research or you're doing a project or you're trying to solve a problem, you know, having somebody who is neurodivergent like ourselves who can hyper fixate if they have good executive function on something that that could be challenging for other people. It's that sort of amazing neurodivergent outside perspective of looking at patterns of information or data over a set or a period of time and being able to extrapolate um, some sort of recognition of, of a place where we see something kind of bubbling up again or connected. That's important for solving that problem because we can develop a response or a hack for that piece of code uh, in that situation. Or we may uh, create an entirely uh, different situation to scale it in a way that we can have control. And so we have to be willing sometimes to walk away from that solution that we've you know sort of hyper fixated. And if it is a decision uh, or information that is affected by a, a team effort or a relationship effort, you know, we got to make sure everybody's on board. And so sometimes it's tough uh, when you're a neurodivergent person who is also somewhat iconoclastic um, to communicate what you sort of instinctively know uh, to be true to those around you who can't see the pattern or can't see the idea. And so that's the challenge, having that superpower sometimes, is being able to effectively communicate what you have discovered in your, the process. So going back to the concept of, of so much of, of who we are, what we are, has already been cast or dictated. And sometimes I think that we, we sort of take that for granted or we forget about that. And so after I sort of realized that most of my students obviously were having a flight or fight response in their interview for uh, the International English Language Testing System, it's about 15 minutes they have to do a sort of a face-to-face -face interview, 
that's cut into a monologue, a, a dialogue, a monologue, and a dialogue. And most of it's scripted, uh, except towards the end. And so that's really reveals sort of what happens to people that either memorize or people that actually can process. And so we measure the language, They're, the language they have in a couple of different categories. And through the process of, of doing, you know, over, over 10,000 of these interviews uh, with people, uh, granted, most of the sample is uh, Chinese uh, speakers of English, but I've had, you know, people from other countries. I've had Arabs, I've had um, people, obviously, when I lived in Thailand, Malaysia, um, other nationalities, uh, European, Russian, uh, and so forth. And, and the language definitely indicates how people think, uh, even when they're a non speaker of English trying to use that code to express themselves uh, oftentimes reveals a, a great deal about them, even when they don't say very much. Again, that's the, the superhero divergent, uh, neurodivergent power is being able to sort of thin slice uh, people very quickly, especially for those of us that, that grew up out of uh, abuse or neglected situations where we had to sort of size up um, the adults or people around us um, very quickly and ascertain whether or not they would uh, be a threat or if they are a threat, how we could uh, survive uh, the abuse or the situation. So thin slicing for many of us is almost a secondary um, concern. It's, it almost seems intuitive to those that observe us from the outside. Like, well, how did you, how do you know that that person is, you know, um, having this difficulty or this person is bad or whatever else. And again, it's trusting your instinct, but we have to understand that we are processing so much information um, to, to the best of our ability or capacity, unless we are really trying to train uh, how we do that, how we onboard that. I think most of us don't do that. I think we just try to navigate it the best that we can. The issue for me, of course, is that, if we look at certain phenomenons of people making um, precognitive uh, statements or ideas, whether it's dealing with a person or a situation, like how did they come to that conclusion? Did it come from remote viewing? Did it come from um, sort of a quantum leaping uh, to the outcome and so forth? You know, there's all kinds of fun ways to think about what's happening. I would also suggest that there's so much that's happening in the moment that we we process it in a way that we can sort of deal with it. it you know, the human mind's only generating about 25 watts in light bulb equivalent. We, we, it does take a lot of power. Anybody that's had to do a large project or whatever else knows that it, it actually can be exhausting, even on the physical plane, to be so focused or use your mind to really solve uh, issues or develop your mind in certain ways. But for day-to-day -day operations, uh, we we're pretty remarkable as, as a, as a, as a species, as a human entity or a, 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 a meat entity, a meat popsicle here on the planet is that the, the, that part of the primal body, that hypothalamus, it knows how to regulate that thermostat. So it's not, you know, overtaxing your resources, your physical resources, whether it's, you know, your, feelings of hunger or feelings of anxiety or nervousness, or if you're too hot, you're too cold. I mean, we, st we still have those feelings and, and we still can express them. But if we walk into a certain situation and start talking to somebody, there's a lot of other things that are happening um, that we maybe are not processing consciously, but could be subconsciously. If that's the case, trust your instinct. And so when you meet somebody and, and, you know, we want to sometimes give the people the benefit of the doubt because we, maybe we need that connection or at least we perceive we need that connection at that moment. And so we try to work with them, even though inside we're thinking, mm, I can fucking trust this person about as far as I can throw them. And trust me, I can eat people pretty far. Um, still, I'm cautious. We always have to protect that gooey center, don't we? Uh, especially uh, for those of us that grew up the way that we did. We definitely have a lot of um, ways to protect ourselves. Thin slicing is one of them, stranger danger, um, which has become somewhat problematic for me online because I get contacted a lot and I will have a conversation with people 
and I'm trying to thin slice, but it's it's hard sometimes through text. I prefer either the the phone call or face to face because I can determine pretty quickly whether or not this person's uh, full of shit, dangerous, uh, whatever else. I mean, everybody's trying to to you know work their their angle anyway, uh, and so trusting people online in this situation is precarious at best. Um, and even for myself, I mean, it's oftentimes exploratory of human behavior. And so I know when people contact me, they're trying to con me. I know it's a con, but I want to know what the con is. I want to go down the rabbit hole and and figure out, you know, how does this work? Because it has shifted. You know, it's not like the old days of of Nigerian prince emails of the the Spanish prisoner con, you know, where uh, I've had friends in China that have fallen for that, unfortunately where, you know, basically they got conned out of uh, tens of thousands of dollars. Now it is, I think, especially in this platform, uh, the way that we're interacting with people during the pandemic, we obviously see an explosion of uh, SWs online. And I think that we are dealing with um, some of the ramifications of that aspect. We know that um, there's a lot of people out there that are, are, are hustling, the best they can or for whatever reason um they, so they've come up with creative solutions to try to fucking con people out of their money i don't like that because i don't do that <laughs> i fucking find it really annoying um you know if you had half a fucking heart you'd get a gun and you'd go out and you know hold up a liquor store or something but you know people people don't don't think about the time when they're doing the crime and scamming people online is a crime it's not only a crime in the in the regular sense, especially if someone cheats you out of your money. It's it's kind of a, a crime uh, as as a species, I suppose. But it echoes the sentiments of of how we've kind of built the world as a will to power. And so, even in China, they always say that no one no one has ever cheated, and even those people that get cheated, because there's a lot of a lot of cheats and a lot of scams. You got to understand that that five thousand year old cultures they know a lot of different angles <laughs> that we sometimes are not aware of. We think we're the, sometimes pretty smart, but you'd be surprised. Even though they've forgotten some of the reasons behind a lot of the things that happen in their culture uh, after the reset in nineteen forty nine, of course, uh, what happened in the, the Cultural Revolution, where they destroyed a lot of uh, their connection to the past, uh, but it still resonates. And so <laughs> these concepts for them are, uh, are pretty amazing. Uh, when I think about some of the, the work that I've done with uh, other foreigners in, in China and uh, companies and so forth, and, and you think of all the different hustles and angles that, that they run on people. And again, it's, it's a saying that they have, which is dropping the watermelon to pick up the sesame seed. And for um, a lot of factories or whatever else you know who are sort of hustling their clients in different ways uh, either through uh, double running the product and and selling it uh, at a a different value outside the back door to um, maybe uh, producing you know really substandard goods and then still charging the full price i mean it just goes on and on. I mean, <laughs> there's some amazing stories of some of the hustles that, that have been pulled that successfully. And and you people get really frustrated, like, well, how could that happen? You know, I, I, I know everything. You know, it, I mean, even companies like Nike have been burned on uh, shoe production in China and so forth. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not bashing on China. I'm not at all. All I'm saying is that in that playing field, they've had a lot more experience <laughs> with being a merchant and a vendor. And if you think about what George Carlin said is that uh, for business people, they look at each other and, and they know that they're going to get fucked uh, doing business with another person, but they want to just sort of, you know, decide how well they're going to get fucked in that situation. <laughs> Sounds like a lifestyle for a lot of other people, right? And so, uh, the best advice I ever got was from a gentleman from Singapore in Shenzhen, uh, one of my companies. He said, well, do you have a Chinese partner? I said, yes. He said, oh, it's that's easy. There's only two rules that you need uh, to have a Chinese partner. And I said, oh, okay, this ought to be pretty good. Um, obviously, he was overseas uh, Chinese, um, so he was part of the diaspora that moved to Singapore early on 
and of course came into their money because they took the money with them and then invested it wisely, of course. Um, so the, the two rules, he said, for a foreigner with a Chinese partner uh, in business is, first rule is, one, never trust your Chinese partner. <laughs> okay, great. What's rule number two? Well, of course, see rule number one. Um, and so if you go in it with, with your eyes wide open and saying, okay, if this is the nature of business, which is you got to do the best thing for your for yourself and for your business, and so that means even the people you work with, um, in that scenario, they would try to take advantage of each other. The dog-eat-dog world, right? The hegemony and uh, the joys of capitalism, free market, etc. That's a whole nother bucket bag of dicks. Um, so the concept to me, of course, is uh, the things that we we sort of convince ourselves of and then try to um, superimpose that onto the world around us or the reality that we find ourselves in. And a lot of times uh, that happens uh, somewhat on a organic or natural level because of the human body itself. Uh, that's one of the sort of things that uh, we have to accept when we sort of download or um, upload our consciousness into this uh, meat sack uh, on this sort of plane of existence is there's kind of a trade-off. And the trade-off is that, okay, we're going to give you this amazing source consciousness that can, uh, you know, travel the stars and, and multiverses and all this other thing. You're, you're part of the source. You can be connected to the greater sort of knowledge. Um, you have all these different abilities, but then we put you in this meat sack and now you're sort of somewhat limited. Uh, and I think that has to happen in order to get through the process. Think of it as like playing a sort of specialized sport that requires, you know, certain sort of equipment to protect yourself or protect the other players. And I think uh, walking around here in this uh, amazing, amazing sort of uh, biological uh, entity uh, that is composed of the human flesh and uh, somehow has, uh, or at least believes that it has consciousness. <laughs> and so despite our higher selves and how we want to operate on those levels, uh, we still have attachment to this vessel. And so we have to reframe our idea of saying, okay, we are a, uh, some sort of a spiritual being or some sort of energy um, that has been, put into this this physical vessel and so we have to sort of play the game uh, to the best of, of our abilities with what we have and if we think of it as a game of trying to get to the next level then we can um, sort of recognize maybe some of our, our advantages but also our disadvantages and we have to we have to accept those in reality just the same way that we uh, have to sort of explore our trauma. I was going to say accept our trauma. I even have a hard time saying those two words together as a cavalcation, accept my trauma, uh, because that's where I'm at is, is trying to accept it or deal with it. Uh, because we, we, we're really good at suppressing it and like, I mean, just stuffing it deep down. Um, and, and so it can fester and, you know, scratch and cause some irritation. And then of course it leads to other behavior and so on. Uh, accepting or at least at least recognizing it and trying to sort of heal it or reframe it is an important step. Uh, I did hear, hear something that was pretty good is like once you get through the, the childhood trauma aspect, then you got to move on to your your adolescent trauma that will come out. And I think I think I'm probably somewhere within that range as the most of the difficulty that I'm having uh, in my uh, marriage is the, and separation, of course, is the, the fact that um, I'm definitely being somewhat adolescent in my behavior uh, related to my trauma, uh, whether it's, you know, being over-sexualized or um, walking around, uh, you know, like in high school with, you know, <laughs> a backpack over my crotch because it's a 24-hour a erection fest. Um, I'm exaggerating, of course, but definitely my libido is in um, is in hyperdrive, like in adolescence. And of course, that's that's the hormone therapy. That's what that's what uh, HRT is 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 doing is kind of reversing the clock a little bit, 
in different ways for that biology. And so it's, it's, it's the reason why I love uh, things like uh, alternative uh, medicines, uh, s- supplements, uh, anything that they sort of alter the physical body or enhance. That's, it's, that's my connection to enhanced athlete. And uh, Tony Huge is the fact that we have a lot of the same ideas and values of what we can and cannot do with the human body. Um, do, do, we, do we agree on everything 100%? No, of course not. And I know there's a lot of kickback on, on how he presents himself as information, as contact. But I, I can tell you this, uh, Tony Huge has never been anything but friendly, supportive, understanding. Um, he's, just, he's just been a good friend to me. And, and I'm lucky because I think his popularity in that area there's a lot of people that, that like to be friends with him, and he's a friendly guy. But um, at that level of the game, obviously, you also have to be cautious about who you have around you. And so we always sort of compare our situations um, because you know we've had some ups and downs in our lives, in our relationships, um, in our fortune, and you know it's it's sort of like I always tell him, well, you know, I'm I'm down here at the dollar slots. So, you know, you're in the you're in the the high the high roller room and so for him you know something that could be problematic can be really costly and expensive and affect a lot of people for myself i'm much more insular and so um i'm more worried about how it's affecting me and my sort of immediate relationships but as you move forward as you level up uh, you're going to build higher sort of networks and connection and you're gonna have more responsibilities so you're gonna have to have your shit pretty tight and you're going to have to understand the biology, the human aspect of how you are behaving, because you can hack it. You can make adjustments to that. And it's, it's as simple as, you know, exercise, uh, hydrating, breathing, meditation. You know, we, we know all these things are beneficial for us. And so uh, any resistance to doing it, that's another construct in our mind. We're blocking ourselves for, for some other reason. Um, Please don't. <laughs> and if you're having if you're having difficulty and you're struggling with that aspect of motivation, hit me up. You know, I, I'm looking for the same thing. It, it's nice to to be surrounded by other people and say, okay, I want to take it to the next level, um, but I'm struggling. You know, how do I how do I how do I get to to that area? And so you got to start simple. And I say starting with the body is the easiest thing that we can sort of exhibit some sort of conscious control over because it's not in total but at least it's putting your, your will to power. And so, no, you cannot stop breathing. You cannot stop your heart on command, but you can put yourself in a position where you can control your breath. Whether you're, you know, doing some kind of breath work where you elevate your heart rate or slow your heart rate down. And so try to, try to put some, a little bit of effort in those areas. And, and that's something that you can do from, from any point. I mean, I, I have some people that are morbidly obese that I work with and, and they are bed bound in some ways. And people have, have given up on them and, and they've given up on themselves. And so oftentimes we just start with the most basic um, sort of autonomy, which is breath work. And so anybody can do that because they can apply their sort of conscious will to their subconscious, the top brain to the lower brain and say, okay, I'm purposely going to control my breathing in order to influence my heart rate, which has other influences on what sort of um, chemicals are being produced to get an electrical reaction uh, to stimulate my body or my mind. And so we know that the big joke, of course, is the, the hits of serotonin and dopamine and so on that we all crave. Um, and we always sort of look maybe for in the wrong places or the easy places like going out and shopping or, you know, uh, flirting, whatever it may be, jumping online, playing a video game. Let's get back to the center of that. Let's get back to the core of that. And let's just work on breathing to start with. Then let's hydrate. Let's make sure that we are hydrating to the point that uh, it is optimal for our body. And I don't mean drinking a bunch of crap. I mean, we should try to drink the best kind of water that we can get our hands on. It doesn't have to be pH water or anything else like that. I'm just talking about 
water that doesn't have lead or arsenic and hopefully not a lot of fluoride as well. Um, and so as pure as we can get it, which is becoming more difficult because obviously it is a commodity that, that the, uh, the reptiles in charge want to make sure that they can profit off of as well. They're going to play all their games, so we have to play our games as well. So coming back to the, to the, the core here concept, hopefully I didn't totally lose the plot or the thread or take the long way around the barn here, is that um, we need to sort of accept where we're at as spirit and human body and embrace that um, for now if we have more things to learn in that arena. Now, we have examples in history of people like the Buddha, um, maybe other religious figures or legendary figures who achieve some sort of enlightenment and, oh, like Muhammad, of course, yeah, he flew to heaven on a winged horse. You know, we have these stories of people that, that basically have leveled up so much that they, you know, become a god or a demigod in, in the eyes of their, of their followers or associates. I'm not saying that you have to become a god. <laughs> especially if you're having difficulty cleaning your room um, along with Jordan Peterson. But what I'm saying is that you want to take it to the next level. And in order to do that, you have to ascertain, uh, you know, what, what can you do? As my friend in, in Foshan used to say, what can you do? <laughs> so it doesn't matter how much amount of money you have or other resources or other experiences, uh, what abilities you have, uh, just find a place where you get to center work on the breathing and start to sort of branch out from there. That's an easy place to start, especially here uh, on a day that's supposed to be about fresh starts because we have a new moon. Um, we have Easter, which comes from Estar, from the sort of the, the pagan goddess of spring, uh, which was done amazingly in the, uh, the TV series uh, American Gods. I thought she was so delightful in that performance. And so I'm glad that, that people, at least I would say, have more of an awareness of uh, these types of connections to our past and our holidays, uh, aside from the Judeo-Christian uh, tale of, of uh, Iron Age, a sheep herder's guide to the galaxy stuff, uh, which I thought's a pretty good description of, of, their, of, their, of the tenant there. Um, which still works for some people. They're happy with living <laughs> the Iron Age values in this modern age. And, and I think that's what the big conflict or disconnect is between uh, these cultures or culture wars. And for those, of the, uh, those that prefer a culture war of trying to hold on to their reality by stealing ours in the sense that they would prefer some sort of theocracy to live under. And I don't want to live under a theocracy, whether it is a Christian theocracy, a Muslim theocracy. Um, obviously, in China, the state is the is the religion in that case. But as an outsider, it doesn't affect me as 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 much as it would the citizenry. And so, I understand the concerns that we have in this country that 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 definitely the the religious right or the evangelical right. You know, it's a death cult in the sense that in order to, to see the fruition of their belief is there has to be an apocalypse. There has to be end times. And so, you know, they've been living the end times for the very beginning. The first time that, that their, their ilk or their kin or their tribe of people that, that have that, that part of the brain that's somewhere normally in the upper right hand frontal lobe that allows for belief. Uh, when we study the human brain, uh, now that we have the ability to to look at imaging um, in, a, in a very sort of uh, analytical way with looking at electrical signals lighting up when people are thinking. And so we can sort of get an idea of what activity is happening when people are, are viewing or hearing or thinking about things. And we have enough data to know that people who are religious have this area of the brain physically, physically is more developed, um, meaning it has more uh, neurons, more connections, more activity. And so someone who is a devoted follower of their religion, whether it is Judeo-Christianism or Islam or the other other ones, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. Um, Buddhism doesn't seem to, to chart as high as uh, some of the other religions because they do require a lot more um, 
mental gymnastics <laughs> in order to to deal with their dialectics to in order uh, to uphold what they believe to be uh, their belief system when it's in conflict with the, the, the situation or so-called reality around them. And that's probably more so now than ever, because again, it's the iron age uh, book of the sheep herders guide to the galaxy. So can we still use that format or imprint uh, where we're at now uh, as a map to navigate? Eh, I, I, for myself, no, for some people, I mean, that's, that's what they have and that's what they're doing. And I don't mind that as long as that, you know, religion is like a penis in the sense that uh, if you have it, that's fantastic. And if you enjoy it, even better. But you don't need to whip it out in public <laughs> or try to force it on to the rest of us in that case. That's not, not, not a thing to do. And it bothers me that that happens in some cases, at least with some of the other devoted faiths, they definitely have put in in their tenets not to proselytize or to evangelize other people. And so that makes them a lot less intrusive uh, in the culture of uh, separation of the church and state. They get that idea. And I, and I think definitely that was an important part of, of our construct for democracy is understanding that we have to keep those separated. In my lifetime, I would say that the uh, far right the GOP, the Republicans, uh, definitely coming out of Rumsfeld and Cheney in the White House, shadowing Nixon, going into Ford, and then bringing in Reagan on purpose, and willing to use that sort of influence of the evangelical right in America and their money and their resources to um, start the culture wars. And so I'll it's one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical and cynical about the concepts of where we're at now, because I've lived through them and watched the changes you know, from, you know, being a young man who grew up in a military conservative household, uh, definitely very Republican. Uh, we weren't obviously uh, Christian or fundamentalist in that way, but uh, definitely the, 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 the make America great values before they had it were, were instilled. Thank God for punk rock. <laughs> Thank God for Erg the Music War playing every day on the movie channel in junior high. And, and thank God for Lux Interior of the Cramps because I was never the same after that. Same for watching The Clash the first time on the television or Devo, uh, Oingo Boingo of, of being that sort of misfit person in life and looking at music that said, ah, this is for me. This is the song of my people. And thank God that that or goddess, I should really say, um, that it, it changed who I was, that it, it helped me to see that there was a world beyond my parents' world or my father's world, I should say, because that's who was taking care of me at the time. And once you realize it's not your parents' world, it's it's actually your world, then you have to sort of begin to, you know, Jack Sparrow it. You've got to navigate it. And for someone like myself, who's uh, now chaotic neutral, um, probably at that time, I was probably lawful good, right? Uh, you know, along with uh, Highlander and uh, <laughs> Superman and all the other people, character alignment is, is very important to me, even though I do not play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I was invited yesterday very publicly at the end of Sketch and Straw, and um, there was this uh, beautiful sort of large gal that came in. I mean, she must have been like 6'2", probably 280, uh, but but gorgeous, just big and beautiful and you know, and so, of course, I wanted it to sound like I was very cool because, you know, hey, that's what I do, right? So uh, I said, well, you know, considering where I'm at right now, I, I don't think the flex that I want to make is like, oh, yeah, what's your hobbies? I play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> if I still married, I probably would do, I would go for it. But I was never very good at it anyway because I'm chaotic neutral. If you talk to the friends that we played with in high school, you know, I was very disruptive. I, I don't have enough attention span to uh, hang in there through that bullshit and then interact with people very well. I don't play very well with others, uh, especially if the rules are somewhat flexible in this case. So um, thinking differently about the culture wars and conservatism and that stuff, once you, once you begin to question it and you can sort of get yourself out of it, then you realize that those dyna dynamics don't, don't play in well for you. 
And so I'm always concerned by that because I've, I've watched it morph in the last, you know, 30 to 40 years into the force that it is now, which is definitely an American Taliban with a high sort of investment in the old sort of dynamics of racism, uh, misogyny, uh, bigotry, and so on. And you can understand why they're, they're concerned about being quote unquote canceled. Uh, you know, all these things that, that happen, I mean, it's all about projection with them anyway, because that's how they operate. I'd say, yes, they need more breath work. They need to get more in tune with, with themselves and the world instead of just deciding to use this kind of cookie cutter personality. And I understand why, I understand why people do it. It's just easier. <laughs> it's easier not to have uh, your own ideas and your own thoughts. You can just sort of, you know, go through your life on, on autopilot. I think it was uh, prop master Jay that said, uh, you know, you laugh at us because we're so weird and we laugh at you because you're the same. Uh, that's pretty observant. And so even for us, we, we have to make some sort of uh, compromise in order to navigate all of this. So going back to uh, breath work, going back to the biology of the human body, if you're trying to make changes in your life, start with the basics. Start with the things that you can sort of hack or manipulate within your sort of present center. And again, if you're someone who maybe can't get out of bed right now, uh, or maybe you're can't get out of the house <clears throat> after living like a troglodyte for the last three years in the pandemic. And now things are, are still precarious, but at least it's not so mandated for masks, whatever else you can make your own decisions. And if you're not comfortable with that, I'd say still wear a mask, you know, always make the best deal for yourself. That's something that we always try to do on our own. Uh, look out for your, look out for yourself because no one's coming. <laughs> um, only yourself, your higher self is coming. Oh, higher self's coming. Oh. <laughs> Can't resist uh, for sure. And so, if you can uh, get your higher self to come down and, and help you sort of manage your day to day affairs, then you can you can develop that to manage uh, bigger things. And so, bring in the gamification, one step at a time, one moment at a time, um, and and you always get a second chance or second opportunity if you can can jump into that moment, but you have to have a sense of presence to do that. And in order to get to that presence, that breath work is definitely important, however you achieve it. And I'm not going to be sort of specific in, in leaning one way or the other because different things work for different people. Thank God we are different for the most part. We have a lot of similarities that we uh, can think of and that's useful for us when we, when we do sort of thin slice a situation uh, to improve it. So wherever you're at in this point of your journey or trip, and if you've made it this far in 58 minutes, then let's keep it simple. Let's put all these things back in the box and say, okay, we know that there's, there's things that are, are afoot. Some we understand, some we sense or believe that they're happening, but we're not exactly sure what they are. Um, we know that there's a lot of other possibilities that are available to us. And if, if we're being drugged down or held down in a negative situation, we can't escape. Just like in the movie Red Belt, there's always an escape, um, which is an amazing film. Uh, I recommend that always um, because of the performance. It's uh, David Mamet uh, taking on uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So David Mamet, amazing playwright, of course, who's written a lot of other fantastic pieces. Um, for him to, to explore this genre of maybe the way of the warrior, I would say, uh, is pretty amazing because it, it, it resonates for those of us that have a type of intellect and a type of emotional uh, EQ that is different than other people's. And so it resonates with us. Find those things that will motivate you and inspire you to get through today. And if that's where you're at, where you, maybe today is the only the only sort of goal, can I get through today without, you know, abusing myself or abusing others uh, in a physical way or a mental way, then just start there. And if that means just focusing on your breathing today, focusing on your hydration today, getting some kind of movement, connecting yourself from your higher consciousness to your lower consciousness, just start there.
See if, see if that's the Easter egg that you are looking for that will help you. And so it's time of renewal. So let's be renewed. Hey, thanks for listening to the Local 666-269 podcast. Um, look for more content coming as it develops. We've got some interviews lined up, and I always appreciate uh, everyone's comments and supports. I love being a legend in my own mind, uh, so that's pretty useful for me in that case. So look for the links. Look for other good stuff. Be well and breathe. Breathe.